You might want to turn in your hymnal. I should have told you to hold on to your hymnal. To page 670. In the back. 670 to our Confession of Faith back there. <clears throat> when we've had opportunity in the afternoons, we've been uh, working our way very slowly through sections of chapter 1 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, chapter 1, of course, is of the Holy Scriptures. So the doctrine of Scripture. We spent quite a while on the first paragraph and then the, the second and third about the canon. Um, I hope you'll notice some themes return from that today, but not directly about the canon uh, much of the time. Uh, I, I've changed the title just slightly from what's listed in your bulletin, um, just because I'm picky, I guess. Scripture's Divine Authority is the title. Scripture's Divine Authority. And it is the title you should have on your handout, actually. So if you have the handout, you're good. We're going to try to cover paragraphs 4 and 5 today. And then I'm, I'm especially excited about getting to paragraphs 6 through 10. Uh, they'll be one at a time, probably, in the next uh, several weeks. Um, because there's all this groundwork laid in these first several paragraphs, and then there's um, some very, very needed and very helpful applications of all the foundation that's been laid as we get, I would say, to, to especially paragraph six and following. But today, this kind of uh, um, nails down as if the first paragraph did not do it adequately, nails down Scripture's divine authority and what and how we should view that. Let's read paragraphs 4 and 5 before we go any further. Paragraph 4. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, meaning for that reason, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Uh, I'll pause there and say, again, the, the scripture texts uh, footnoted originally aren't in our, our hymnal. But for this uh, paragraph 4, they list 2 Peter 1, 19-21, 2 Timothy 3.16, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and 1 John 5.9, as I listed there in your notes. And we will get back to those later. Paragraph 5 then says this. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, that is, uh, the content, the heavenliness of the matter, or the content, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, it all fits together, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the, the, the thoroughness it lays out of the way of salvation, that is, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. And that was a long sentence that was complicated. We'll break that down a little later. But basically it's saying um, the, the testimony of the church plays a role in reminding us um, 
in, in reinforcing our esteem of the scriptures, but then it just talked about all these perfections of scripture itself that just are self-evident that it is the word of God and not man. But then we finish out the paragraph and it says, yet notwithstanding, that is, um, though we've said all this, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And it footnotes three texts which all have to do with that work of the Spirit. John 16, 13 through 14, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12, and 1 John 2, 20 and 27. Sam Waldron, in his book on the Confession, um, he says that the development of thought in paragraphs 4 and 5 utilizes the classic theological distinction between the authority of the word in itself, quad say, and its authority with us, quad nos. This theological distinction is based on the difference between two questions which may be asked about the authority of the Bible. Why is the Bible authoritative? That's the first question. Why is it authoritative? And, secondly, how do we know that the Bible is the word of God and thus authoritative? So why is it authoritative objectively and then subjectively? Um, how do we come to know that it is authoritative? Our subjective experience. How that plays in. So first of all, uh, and I'm... I'm heavily dependent even on, in my outline on things borrowed from Sam Waldron, also from Jim Renahan in his book that's just come out uh, on the confession. Uh, but first of all, we'll deal with the source of Scripture's authority. That's paragraph four, really. Again, the authority of the Holy Scripture, it says, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. So, we don't believe we, we don't believe the Bible is God's word simply because, well, an organization called the church told us so, right? And just because of that. Uh, it addresses the testimony of the church in paragraph 5, you remember. But it's not just, well, because the church or the priesthood or someone like that told us so no scripture is self-evidently the word of god because it is the word of god god breathed it out and it's evident that it that it has those qualities it's to be received simply on god's direct authority even if nobody had told us yet that it that it was the word of god uh, jim renahan uh, writes this about this paragraph. He says, The confession asserts that authority is derived from authorship. Because the scriptures are breathed out by God, they take on the characteristic of God. He is truth. As Warfield says, Because inspired, that is, because they're breathed out by God, scripture is the word of God. And because the word of God, it exercises lawful authority over the thoughts and acts of men. And then Renahan quotes Benjamin Keach. Benjamin Keach was an early particular Baptist pastor in London, um, 1600s, 1700s. Benjamin Keach writes, Of all things in the world, the sacred scriptures assume most unto themselves. They tell us that they are the words of eternal life. 
that they are, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, the testimony of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, that they shall judge the world, that they are able to make us wise unto salvation, that they are the immortal seed of which the sons and daughters of God must be begotten. Their tenor is, that is, their, their, um, the feel of them is, thus saith the Lord. And no conclusion, but the Lord hath spoken, hear the word of the Lord, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, etc. The nature, quality, or composer of the style or phrase we may say, that we say, is emphatically and signally different from that of all human writings whatsoever. Here are no apologies, begging pardon of the reader, or insinuating into his good opinion by devices of rhetoric, but a stately plainness and mysterious simplicity. Hence, well saith one of the ancients, the scripture so speaketh, that with the height of it, it laughs proud and lofty-spirited men to scorn. With the depth of it, it terrifies those who with attention look into it. With the truth of it, it feeds men of the greatest knowledge and understanding. And with the sweetness of it, it nourisheth babes and sucklings. After all that, Renahan says one last thing. He says, The scripture does not derive its existence or authority from the church, Romanist or otherwise. Rather, the church derives her existence and authority from, from the word. And as such, saving faith receives the scripture on the basis of its own authority, that is, God's authority. So let's turn to these texts that the, the confession lists. Let's go to the Bible itself and let it speak for itself. Second Peter 1, 19-21. The Apostle Peter is just, again, reminded his readers that... Uh, he and the apostles did not follow cleverly devised fables that someone made up, but they were eyewitnesses of the majesty of the Lord Jesus. And he specifically refers to his transfiguration on the mountain when God uh, out loud affirmed his son. <laughs> then he goes to talk about the Old Testament scripture and, and by extension all scripture. 2 Peter 1.19 And we have the prophetic word that is the word spoken through the prophets, the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What does that mean? Pause there. Um, people have done various things with this. I, th I think what Peter is actually communicating is that um, when, when the prophets observed some event and then they wrote about it. It wasn't them just interpreting something for themselves. Their human interpretation of what something meant. <laughs> um, or you could say even the transfiguration. You know, the apostles didn't see something and say, well, I think that means this. No, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not just a human interpretation of things. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Now, does that mean that when the men wrote it down, it was not involving their will at any level? Well, no. You even read, don't you, in the epistles, I wanted to write this, 
But instead I chose to write this. So they're choosing to write things, correct? So what is he saying? No prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Well, he's saying it was never merely human. The real and ultimate will behind all of this was God's will. He says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, men were, were writing this down and they were not, um, they didn't go into a sort of a trance where they, they lost all their, all their mental faculties and stuff and just were automatically writing something. No. But God, by his Holy Spirit, carried them along to say exactly, exactly what God wanted to say. So it's, Men who wrote it down, and God used their personalities, he used their backgrounds, he used everything he'd made them to be, and yet God ensured by his Holy Spirit that this was his inerrant word. Men spoke from God. And so, Sam Waldron observes here, he says, God made these men's mouths through general providence and special grace creating the precise instrument desired. Organic inspiration assumes the reformed and biblical view that the same activity can be and is both divinely ordained and the product of free human agency. Thus, the Bible can be the product of human beings writing and acting freely, while at the same time it is divinely inspired and inerrant. Now listen to this. The implication is that those who reject reformed views of divine sovereignty and yet understand the pervasive humanity of the Bible, must logically reject the complete inerrancy of the Bible. This has, in fact, occurred in a recent well-known evangelical theologian. That was in the 1980s. It was Clark Pinnock. Though at one time a defender of biblical authority, this theologian adopted Arminian views. Consequently, in a recent book on the Bible, he has denied the unlimited inerrancy of the Bible. What's the point there? Well... Maybe a side note, but it's important. Um, if you don't believe that God can sovereignly control down to the very detail the free actions of men, <laughs> how can you believe in inerrant scripture? Because men wrote it. That's the point. And this has really messed some people up who, just, who went with, they, they didn't go with God's sovereignty. They went with, well, I have to follow my own version of human free will to its logical outcome. He mentioned Clark Pinnock as one such theologian who went that direction. And he kept going, actually, since the 80s, even farther, into open, uh, as I understand it, into uh, open theism, that sort of thing. So it, it, uh, it comforts us if we don't to totally comprehend, but if we understand enough that we believe the biblical doctrine that God is sovereign and man is a free agent, and both are true at the same time, so that uh, God's uh, decree always comes to pass, even through free human actions. And that gives us confidence that God is well able to give us an inerrant Bible to, um, through the holy men who wrote it down. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. <clears throat> this should be familiar. You can probably quote it without turning to it, I imagine. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All Scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In context, the special emphasis of the man of God is that Timothy is the man of God who is his, it's his vocation, his calling to preach and teach the word of God. Um, but as he is to teach God's people, reprove them, correct them, set them back on the right path, and then train them in that right path, train them in righteousness. Scripture, which is breathed out by God, is, is profitable for all that, not just somewhat profitable for all that, but it, it is all sufficient for that. If the man of God has Scripture, he, ha- he is complete. He is equipped for everything he needs to do, every good work. Everything we need for our souls, in other words, everything we need uh, to have a right relationship with God, to have eternal life. Everything for life and godliness is in this book. First Thessalonians 2.13, I'll just quickly read this. Paul says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Again, stressing what the confession says, uh, you must immediately accept the scripture when you hear it as because it is God's own breathed out words. That's why we bow before it, not because some man said it. And first John five, nine, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. We see the sorts, this, this sort of uh, reformation emphasis on whose authority backs up the Bible, ultimately. We see this come out not just in our confession, in other confessions and documents of, of the Protestant Reformation coming out of it, um, because it was a big deal. And it still is a big deal for many people who can fall back into the same trap. Um, people are often sucked back into Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, or something else because they think they need to have a church that, that simply tells them what to believe. And it's simply on the authority of that organization of men that they know what, what is the Word of God and what isn't. That's the trap, one of the traps out of which um, God, through the event of the Reformation, rescued his church. Um I want to read to you from the Gallican Confession. It just mean, that just means the French Confession of 1559. These were French Calvinists, if you want to call them that, the Huguenots. Here's what they said on on similar issue. They said, We believe that the word contained in these books has proceeded from God and receives its authority from him alone and not from men. And inasmuch as it is the tru- the rule of all truth, containing all that is necessary for the service of God and for our salvation, it is not lawful for men or even for angels to add to it, to take away from it, or to change it. Whence it follows, that is, since we've said all that, it logically follows, that no authority, whether of antiquity, or custom, or numbers, or human wisdom, or judgments, or proclamations, or edicts, or decrees, or councils, like church councils, or visions, or miracles, should be opposed to these holy scriptures. But on the contrary... All things should be examined, regulated, and reformed according to them. And therefore we confess, and they give an example here, therefore we confess the three creeds, to wit, 
the apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian, because they are in accordance with the word of God. End of quote. So what they're doing here is they're saying, yes, we have a Catholicity, if you want to put it that way, a, a common bond with the church through the ages in what we believe. But it's not because the church told us that that's what the word of God is. We believe what's contained in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, in the Athanasian Creed, but not simply because it's a creed of a church council. We believe it because we see, as it says, they are in accordance with the Word of God. That's why we believe what's in those creeds. That's an important distinction. And all things, including the church councils they list, they say should be examined, regulated, and reformed according to the Scriptures. Again, that doesn't mean every aspect of orthodoxy is on the table to be re-examined. That's not the point. Uh, the point is, are we accepting all this ultimately on some human authority? No. Also, the Belgic Confession of 1561, Article 7. So, um, again, Reformed people in the, the Low Countries, Belgium, they said, we believe that these holy scriptures fully contain the will of God. And that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in the Holy Scriptures. Nay, though it were an angel from heaven, as the Apostle Paul saith. For since it is forbidden to add unto or take away anything from the word of God, it doth thereby evidently appear that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. Neither may we compare any writings of men, though ever so holy, with those divine scriptures. Here it is again. Nor ought we to compare custom or the great multitude. Have to be careful how we talk about the great tradition even today. The great multitude or antiquity or succession of times or persons. That is the succession of times and persons. We can trace all the way back people who believed this for a long time. Or councils. <clears throat> excuse me, or councils, decrees, or statutes with the truth of God. We can't compare them with the word of God. <clears throat> For the truth is above all. For all men are of themselves liars, and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore we reject with all our hearts whatsoever doth not agree with this infallible rule, which the apostles have taught us, saying, try the spirits, test the spirits, whether they are of God, and likewise, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. End of quote. Some people get careless and start saying things like, well, you know, the reason we know what's in the canon is because the church told you so. <laughs> Don't go down that road. Now we move on to the evidence of Scripture's authority. So it just stated there, the source of Scripture's authority, objectively, it's because God simply breathed it out. And it's inherently authoritative on its own, self-evidently. But now we come to um, the subjective side of this. As, um, as Sam Waldron had said, how do we know, how do we know that the Bible is the word of God and thus authoritative? Or you might say, how do we come to learn this? How does that work? So you have in your outline there um, how paragraph 5 of the confession talks about the nature of the evidence of Scripture's authority. 
that there's external evidence and internal evidence. And then, uh, let's see, I, I misplaced something here. One second. There we go. And then the efficacy of the evidence. Efficacy meaning what makes it efficacious, what makes it um, effective that, it, that we are convinced that this is the word of God. So, the nature of the evidence, first of all, the external evidence. The confession admits that the church does play a role in reinforcing our confidence in Scripture, certainly. The church's testimony is external evidence. It says, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. Jim Renahan again. He says, this paragraph identifies the nature of the proof of the authority of Scripture. It does so by an interesting method. At first, it acknowledges that there are certain forms of external evidence that support the authority of Scripture and that have their place, but it does not rely on them. Full attestation rests elsewhere. Excuse me, I didn't drink here. Full attestation rests elsewhere. The student should note that the scripture proofs do not begin until the latter part of the paragraph. So it talks about the reality and value of the external evidence. While acknowledging the vital role played by Christ's church in testifying to the authority of scripture, the confession contrary to the Romanist position, which rests authority on the testimony of the church, places that source of authority elsewhere. Does the church have an obligation to testify to the authority of Scripture? Of course, the answer is yes. But do men have an obligation to believe in the authority of Scripture simply on the basis of this testimony? While the church ought to assert that Scripture is the word of God, is it, it is not on that basis alone that people are asked to rest their faith in it. The whole issue of the basis of authority is in question here. End of quote. You say, what difference does it make? Why are we talking about this? Well... Remember what we talked about the, when we talked about the Apocrypha? Why do, you, why do you believe that the Apocrypha is not the word of God? The church, the very old church of Rome says it is. So are you rejecting the church's authority? <laughs> See, th- this gets practical when you get down to, okay, what is and what isn't the word of God? So which is why we took so long on canon. But there's internal evidence. Scripture's excellencies. Again, if this is the word of God, it's going to show, right? The, the, uh, the confession here says, and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies, and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Again, Scripture is self-evidently the word of God. It shows itself to be the word of God. Uh, it lists, so it lists six examples of internal evidence of how Scripture's excellencies show that it's not just something men wrote. But it also says there's many other evidences. Um, and yet, as Jim Renahan says, even these things in and of themselves cannot give to fallen men a sure and certain conviction with regard to the nature of Scripture's authority. 
Haven't you noticed? Your neighbors aren't all convinced that the Bible is the word of God. If scripture is self-evidently, obviously the word of God, why why doesn't everyone recognize that? It's because they're fallen. Right? The, The problem is not and I'll probably, I'm probably repeating what I'll say later, but bears repeating. The problem is not something wrong with the scriptures. The problem is something wrong with us as fallen people. As Renahan says, uh, yeah, that's what he says next. Is this because the scriptures are somehow defective? Not at all. It is rather because humans are defective. Left to ourselves, And this is what is implied in the the light of the third statement, see below the the rest of the paragraph. We cannot and will not treat the scriptures as we ought. The God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. They simply will not be convinced based on their unregenerate intellect examining the scriptures. But um, if you just look at the scriptures objectively, not not we'll, we'll get to fallen man. And what can convince them of the scriptures being the word of God? But if you look at the scriptures objectively, there's nothing objectively about the scriptures that does not evidence divine authority. On the contrary. Again, Renahan talks about John Owen. John Owen, one of the principal editors of the Savoy Declaration, which is used a lot in our confession. John Owen wrote, wrote this. I deny thee not. That is, I don't argue with the fact that the testimony of the universal church of Christ in all ages, so far as thou art capable of knowing it, as well as of the present church or any particular one to which thou art any way related, as a help to thee. He's saying, I don't deny that the testimony of the church helps us believe that this is the word of God. Make the best thou canst of it, only rest not upon it. But especially take notice, if thou see not the stamp of God upon the word Characters of divinity imprinted on it, as well as external notes accompanying it. Consider the antiquity of it, the continuance of it, the miracles that confirmed it, the condition of the men that penned it, their aims, their carriage and conversation. God's providence in keeping it and handing it down to thee through so many successive generations, when so many in all ages would have bereaved the world of it. That is, notice the amazing providence in preserving the word of God so we have it when many people did not want the word of God to survive. And farther, consider the majesty and gravity and yet plainness and simplicity of its style, the depth of the mysteries it discovers, the truth and divineness of the doctrine it teacheth, the spirituality of the duties it enjoins, the power and force of the arguments with which it it persuades, the eternity of the rewards it promises and the punishments it threatens, the end and scope of the whole, to reform the world, to discountenance and extirpate wickedness, and promote holiness and righteousness, and thereby advance God's glory, and lead man on to everlasting blessedness, etc. What's John Owen doing in his typical John Owen wordy style? What's he doing? He's saying, the testimony of the church is good, but just look at the Bible. Look at what a, an unimaginably good book this is. And how it has been preserved against all odds. And how you have it by God's grace. And look at all its excellencies. It's evidently the word of God. John Calvin said, but with regard to the question, how shall we be persuaded of its divine original unless we have recourse to the decree of the church? (laughs) 
This is just as if anyone would inquire, how shall we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter? For the scripture, John Calvin says, the scripture exhibits as clear evidence of its truth as white and black things do of their color, or sweet and bitter things of their taste. End of quote. This is, this is how scripture speaks of itself, too, isn't it? Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Notice, it's not making arguments to persuade you. It's, it's just stating it. This is how it is. And you know it but if you look at it. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping of them there is great reward. Or Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. So if we are, so to speak, in our right minds, we should recognize just by seeing it. This is the word of God. How has the word of God changed you? How has it all, um, I was about to make a word that's not a word. How has it omnipotently worked in you? How many has it turned from death to life? It's the word of God. It's like if someone were to come up to you and, and you've been married, let's say, 20 years. Someone says, are you certain that you actually married that person? Are you certain that's actually your spouse? Uh, yeah. <laughs> are, are you appealing to the authority of your experience? Well, no, but it's obvious. <laughs> we're married. It should be obvious, Christian. I'm talking to Christians, especially here. It should be obvious from your experience, not because your experience is the authority, but it should be obvious to you that this is the word of God. What God's word claims for itself should match up in such an amazing way to your experience. But we move to the efficacy of the evidence, the Holy Spirit's inward witness. Remember, this paragraph closes out this way. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with this word in our hearts. So Jim Renahan writes, this, this is the necessity and function of the divine evidence. He says, a full and final conviction of the authority of Scripture results only from the internal work of the Spirit of God. It's valuable to note that this idea is fleshed out at length in paragraph 2 of chapter 14 of Saving Faith. These two chapters ought to be read together. 
They teach that only those who have been called and regenerated by the Spirit can and will recognize the Scriptures for their beauty and authority. Should it surprise us when unbelievers reject the testimony of God? We should always remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, we learn that the authority of Scripture is based on its origin. God is the author. But we will only recognize this by means of the work of God's Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. End of quote. Now, the confession here lists John 16, 13-14. Uh, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Um, that text in its context, I would say, is, is more about the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the New Testament apostles and prophets. It's more about that than his illumination of every believer. And yet, we learn from this text that the Spirit of truth, his mission is to glorify Christ. And so he will take what is Christ's and declare it to those who are Christ's. So, that does reflect on the next two texts. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 12. Talking about the Spirit's internal witness, his inward witness. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 10. These things, all the things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard or the heart of man imagined, all the things that God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. No one knows God's thoughts except his own Spirit, and yet we have that Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And he enables us to understand the things freely given us by God. These things, this is 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 1, it said, these sorts of gospel truths are foolishness to the world, right? But it's the Spirit that takes those things that in our natural state we think are foolish and shows us their truth. Likewise, 1 John 2, verses 20 and 27. Verse 20 says, But you have been anointed, all of you believers, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Verse 27, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Context there being, John was saying, you don't need me to tell you that this is false teaching that's, that you're being confronted with. You've been taught by God himself. Because the Holy Spirit illumines your heart to his truth and his word. That's the Spirit's work. It's the anointing we have from God. <clears throat> Sam Waldron makes an important point here. He says, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, therefore has for its nature the removal of that evil ethical disposition which blinds man to the, to the light of divine revelation. The testimony is thus an ethical operation. It does not consist in some new revelation in addition to that which is contained in the scriptures. 
So, I think he's right. Uh, this isn't an additional revelation. It's not like the Spirit speaking to us prophetically every time we look at Scripture, apart from Scripture. No, but the Spirit changes our, our hearts, which are naturally hard toward the things of God. It changes our hearts so we actually can receive what's already there on the page. So we can see it, and so we can accept it. Again, the natural man, as Paul says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He doesn't have the Spirit of God. They're spiritually discerned, he says. So again, this was, this was uh, I give you an example again of the Apocrypha. This was applied that way um, in the Reformation. The Gallican, the French Confession again in 1559, Article 4. They say, it says, uh, We know these books to be canonical and the sure rule of our faith, not so much by the common accord and consent of the Church, as by the testimony and inward illumination of the Holy Spirit. Which enable us to distinguish, which enables us to distinguish them from any other ecclesiastical books, upon which, however useful, we cannot found any articles of faith. Belgic Confession again of 1561, Articles. Well, I think it's Article Five. It says we receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith, believing without any doubt all things contained in them. Not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but more especially because the Holy Ghost witnesseth in our hearts that they are from God, whereof they carry the evidence in themselves. Notice that? The Holy Spirit just lets us see the evidence that's already in them of themselves. For the very blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are fulfilling. So I think now we have a good foundation laid to go to the rest of the chapter in our in the next weeks. Are you convinced that the Bible is the word of God? Now, even real Christians can struggle. They can have doubts that nag at them, can't they? They can be faced with questions that they haven't quite heard put that way before, and they think, Huh, how do I answer that? That's okay. Christians are uh, uh, Christians ought to again dig uh, sink their roots deeper and try to understand better and better why they they know this is the word of God. But when people um, brazenly and adamantly Resist the idea that this is the word of God. There's something else going on there. It's not just an intellectual problem. It never is, is it? It's always because that person and people, we naturally don't like to hear this because we struggle to believe it because we think ourselves so good, but it's because people naturally hate God. At least the true God. They might, they might, replace the true God with something they've kind of made up in their minds. But when confronted with the true God, of course they're not going to respond positively to his word. They don't like him. And his word points out their sin. And it calls them to account. And it demands that they turn from themselves to a savior that shows them to, to need a savior. 
So there's questions that believers will have or sincere people who are going to be saved (laughs) will have. But when someone stubbornly shakes their fist at the Bible and says, that's not God's word, it's an ethical problem, not just an intellectual problem. And we need to be convinced of that. When you, when you talk to, to people and try to give them the gospel and they want, to, they want to portray you as intellectually ignorant and unfounded in your beliefs, just remember and, and think this lovingly because you were once like them in your own way. Just remember what's going on in their heart. They don't like God. And so remember to not just get pulled off onto some intellectual argument that has its place, but deal with their heart through the gospel, even though they don't like it, and let the Spirit do his work. Because again, it's the Spirit that can convince them, and only the Spirit that can convince them, because the Spirit has to change their hearts from hating Christ to loving Christ. That's what he did for you, isn't it? He can do it for anyone. That's our time for today. Thank you for your kind attention. That was not all was easy material. But let's bow in prayer together. Thank you, Father, for your help today in worship and in looking into your word. Help your people to have stability in their hearts as they believe you and your book. Help us to see that Our beliefs are not arrogant. It's not ourselves we're trusting. It's the living God and his self-evidently breathed out book. Help us, Father, for Jesus' sake. And may your word, which is living and active, whether we like it or not, may it do its work in us today. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.